Greetings to all you happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And that's one of the reasons that ordinarily on this show, I do not really discuss current events. I don't discuss news because I respect each and every one of you enough to know that if I am able to teach you, if I'm able to communicate to you and convey to you the fundamental principles of how the world really works, then you can easily interpret current events for yourself you will be able to run with that timeless truth and those permanent principles, and you will be able to interpret, understand, and adapt to whatever is happening in today's headlines. And so that way, I try and make sure that each and every one of these shows is a standalone and what I call evergreen meaning that you can listen to this show days or weeks or even years after I prepare it for you, and it should still be every bit as valuable as it was on the day I prepared it. That's my dream. That's my hope. That's the guiding principle that informs the way I prepare these shows. And so it's a little unusual for me to mention that today the Duke of Edinburgh, the husband of Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain, uh, passed away, died at the age of 99 after 73 years of marriage. He often used to tell people that his main job was simply never to let the Queen down. And you know something? He didn't. Really, it's, it's quite a remarkable story. Um, it, it, the marriage, it, altogether, for people who are interested in long-lived marriages, uh, this is one that it must have been tough to do. And a credit to both them, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, the late Prince Philip, and his wife, Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom. A real credit to both of them. Um, The story I'm going to tell you now is probably, in my mind, the very best example of of what it was that worked for them. (coughs) So um, there was was a guy called Ben Pimlot who used to be uh, the Queen's biographer. I was his job to write everything down for the history books. And um, there was an incident, apparently. He was in the car when um, Prince Philip was driving. And in the car, in addition to Ben Pimlot, was the Queen and also Lord Mountbatten. Lord Mountbatten was a cousin of Queen Elizabeth and also an uncle of uh, Prince Philip. 
So Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth were, I think, like third cousins, perhaps something like that. And so uh, Prince Philip was driving, the Queen was sitting next to him, and Lord Mountbatten was sitting in the back, and they were heading towards a polo game uh, in a place called Cowdery Park, near, not far from London. Worried about their speed, uh, the Queen... <laughs> I can just see this happening. The Queen started to tense herself, and she audibly drew in her breath, and um, at that point, Prince Philip said very firmly to her, if you do that once more, I will put you out of the car. And she stopped. That was it. A credit to both of them, because what a challenge it is. Every woman wants a man she can look up to. Every woman wants a husband um, who is uh, enough of a man to be able to lead her. Uh, she doesn't want a lapdog. Right? No woman wants a yes man. And so imagine how difficult it must have been for Prince Philip to be able to assert himself as a husband. And I mean, how many times, ladies, how many times do you do this? All right. Shall I, shall I tell you what Susan Lappin does? Um, now, I've never said stop that or I'll put you out of the car, but I will say that I've thought it. I, I really have thought it a few times. <laughs> I'll tell you what Mrs. Lappin does, and God bless her, I love her. But um, where, I shouldn't have said but. There is no but to that. Here's what she does. Uh, when we're stopped at a traffic light and the light turns green, if I am not off my marks, if my foot is not jammed down on the gas and we don't jump off like a jackrabbit startled by a coyote, um, Susan quietly says, you've got a green light. <laughs> yeah, for about half a millisecond. But you see, she grew up in New York where everybody is in a hurry all the time. Now, lest you think I dawdle at the light. I really don't. Um, I, um, I, I, I'm even bothered by people who aren't paying attention. Have, have you seen this now, nowadays? Uh, there's a green light and the person in front of you is on his uh, cell phone or he's texting or something. And so the car in front has already moved on and you're now stuck behind this driver who is not driving, he's looking down at his cell phone. <laughs> I mean, I, I have even been known to honk occasionally, not often. I usually just wait, as, and I sort of regard it as a test of my character. But, um, but yes, as a routine, uh, I would say it happens uh, probably at least once every time we drive somewhere together. Susan will softly say, oh, you got a green light. <laughs> yeah, it turned green about literally 500 milliseconds ago, which means half a second. But uh, that's what she does. And, uh, and it's fine. But, um, uh, but in this case, Prince Philip did not care for the queen tensing up and sort of taking in a breath, which was a sort of silent criticism for the way he drives. And ladies, come on, how often do you do that? How often do you tell your husband how to drive? Well, enough said. 
Prince Philip said to her, if you do, if you do that once more, I'll put you out of the car. And she stopped immediately. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, ben Pinlot continues and says that um, when they got to the destination, Prince Philip headed off to the polo field because he, he was one of the players. And Lord Mountbatten said to uh, the Queen, why didn't you protest? You were quite right. He was going too fast. <laughs> to which a puzzled-looking Queen Elizabeth replied. She said, but you heard what he said. My friends, that's a functioning marriage. It, it, it's fine. It's, it's remarkable, in fact. And this is not to say she was subservient, by the way. In in other material covered by Ben Pimlot and other biographers, um, uh, she um, uh, she she was far from far from subservient. Yes, it's true that he sometimes did speak sharply to her, which was exactly you know that's that was his style. That's what he he did. Uh, and she just she just let it roll off her. She tended not to make anything of it when it happened. Yes, what a wise wife. Um, but every now and then, um, the uh, another biographer, a woman called Sarah Bradford, notes that uh, Queen was Queen Elizabeth. From time to time, she heard it happen. She'd say, "Oh, Philip, do shut up. You don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> But um, there it is. Now, uh, I tell you this, you know, firstly, because it's a, a piece of history, uh, Prince Philip dying. This has been a very, very long-lived marriage. This has been a long-functioning monarchy. And, um, and the story of civilization cannot be told without also telling the story of what Winston Churchill called the English-speaking people. Uh, there's another reason I told you this, though, and that is that I wanted you to know that this is a fresh show. Every now and again, not often, but every now and again, when circumstances prevent me from preparing a fresh show, um, I take one from a few years back, on the assumption that uh, many of you may not have heard it. And uh, I go ahead and I might freshen it up a little bit, but basically uh, I, I do do that. And every now and then I love getting letters from very alert listeners to say, I think I heard this one four years ago. I heard this one seven years ago. I got a letter from somebody recently. So uh, why do I want you to know that today's show is fresh and new? Um, well, because, um, as several uh, regular listeners have noted in letters to me recently, uh, I have not done a fresh show for the last three weeks. And the reason for that is I was down with COVID-19. I had a, 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 a really uh, debilitating bout for three weeks. It, it was absolutely impossible for me to work. I literally could not drive myself to my desk. And um, and I, I will stress, thank the Lord, uh, no respiratory symptoms, uh, no hospital necessary. Um, but uh, I will say that 
the reason that I had what is, I think, basically a blessedly light bout of it, although it was debilitating, um, I do believe was because of med- the medications, uh, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and zinc. I started taking them uh, almost immediately the first uh, the symptoms began to show. And, um, and I will say that I wish I'd been taking them prophylactically beforehand, but I didn't, and I'm, I'm telling you this, uh, knowing that it is, and here comes one of my least favorite words in the English language, controversial, controversial. Uh, these medications are controversial. Now, what's wrong with the word? It's a stupid word, because all it means is that there's somebody who doesn't like what you're saying. But it's an attempt to bludgeon you into silence. Oh, that's very controversial. Oh, sorry. Well, I better keep quiet. I shouldn't say it then. That's exactly what the people who use that word intended to do. They intended to silence you. And so people use the word, well, that's very controversial. Um, And of course, there's no question about it that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and taking zinc are very controversial treatments for uh, uh, COVID. So, um, so much so, by the way, that in mid-2020, two of the most prestigious medical journals in the entire world, the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine had to do something unprecedented. It's, 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 I, I was not able to find the last time they ever had to do a thing like this. They withdrew articles that they had published. They had raced to publish articles criticizing hydrochloroquine, ivermectin, and zinc as treatments for coronavirus. And uh, they had to withdraw. It turned out that the data upon which those critical articles rested turned out to be unverifiable, if not falsified. And so the magazines, which had printed articles attacking, treating uh, coronavirus with hydrochloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and zinc, they had to withdraw those uh, articles and say... Um, we don't any longer stand by them. Uh, it's amazing that they published the articles in the first place. They were so poorly done, and it was so premature. But that's part of the fact that these medications are controversial. Now, look, uh, that's not what today's show's about. I just wanted to let you know that I was sick. Uh, I do have theories on why hydroxychloroquine uh, chloroquine and ivermectin and zinc are controversial treatments for coronavirus. Um, part of it is that these are old, unprofitable, long-expired drugs with long-expired ex- long patents, and they're inexpensive. Vaccine money is very, very big money. Big pharmaceuticals is bigger than you realize. So um, that's one of the reasons it's controversial. Another one has to do with the fact that uh, President Trump promoted them. 
And uh, it's almost impossible to overestimate the uh, cultural contempt in which President Trump was held. So, uh, uh, so I'm not discussing this now other than to say that I'm really sorry that I have not done a new fresh podcast since mid-March up till today. But uh, here we are with today as indeed a fresh podcast. And yes, as you know, I do think of us all as happy warriors. And that's usually been on account of our obligation to combat entropy. Entropy, the tendency of the world to settle down towards chaos and disorder. We all tend to get lazy with our relationships, both our intimate relationships and our social relationships. We get lazy with maintenance of uh, our possessions and of our homes and of our business and our workplace. So a happy warrior is someone like us who all of us find genuine happiness and joy in fighting against the forces trying to undermine our life success. But um, here's another reason that we're happy warriors, and that is we are controversial. (laughs) Let's just face it. We're controversial. Our views are controversial. I believe in homeschooling, not for everybody, but for, for many people, including many people who haven't even ever considered it. I think homeschooling is a fantastic thing for families, for education, for children. That is very controversial. Because the culture is doing everything it can to wipe out homeschooling. And I do believe that uh, it is not out of the question that in the United States, we will find moves towards uh, banning homeschooling, making it illegal, just as it is in much of Europe, as it is in the modern state of Israel. Shockingly, but it is. And that could well happen in the United States. Uh, and so uh, if if you are somebody like me, for instance, who believes that there is a serious obligation on a man to be able to defend his wife and family, and that means that uh, in a world such as we have today, it is absolutely imperative for a person to be armed, to be capable of defending himself against the bad guys and defending his family and his children from uh, the increasingly prevalent violence from lawless um, and conscienceless thugs, uh, that is a controversial viewpoint. And so much so that the cultural propagandists have already tried to turn gun ownership into a public health issue to the point where in many areas, it's now encouraged for pediatricians, for children doctors, to actually ask children if their parents keep weapons at home, keep firearms. It's, it's pretty amazing stuff. And I've just picked on two of the most controversial areas of homeschooling and uh, Second Amendment rights in the United States of America. And I realize that uh, in much of the rest of the world, those are not the major issues. But wherever you live, I can assure you that if you're a happy warrior, you are fighting the label of controversial all the time. If you are 
in favor of traditional family. If you believe the very best place for a child to grow up is with its natural mother and father married to one another, uh, all of these things are utterly and entirely controversial. Oh, yes, they're controversial. If you believe that most of the good uh, in uh, economic life has come from a free market of free men and women engaging in voluntary and consensual transactions, then you are believing a controversial viewpoint. And so it goes. And so, uh, yes, uh, as happy warriors, we are okay with being controversial. It's fine. We are happy to fight the labeling of controversial for everything that we believe. So uh, here we go into very controversial territory for today's topic. Are you ready? Very controversial territory. Uh, we're discussing something called economic long wave theory. Now, don't turn off yet because you know I'm not going to leave it at that. I'm going to do my best to make complete sense of this. What is economic long wave theory and why is it so very controversial? So much so, by the way, that one of its theoreticians uh, was an economist called Nikolai Kondratiev, and he was executed by Stalin in 1938. That's, I mean, he was literally executed because of his economic views, which Stalin couldn't stomach. And uh, while Stalin uh, is no longer alive, uh, Stalinist viewpoints continue to live and thrive on university campuses around the world. And so um, uh, today there are many teachers, students um, who... Uh, Attempts are being made to destroy them and kill them, not physically, but to destroy their livelihood, to make it impossible for them to function. That goes on because when you have viewpoints that are controversial, you need to be a happy warrior so as not to cowardly back down and surrender. And so um, the this guy, Nikolai Kondratiev, uh, taught about the economic long-wave theory. Another one was a, a man called Joseph Schumpeter. You might have heard of his name in the context of, um, of creative destruction, if, you know, if you're into Austrian economics. <laughs> it's about like one out of 3,000 of you listening. Um, but he was a professor in Austria before World War II, and then um, he escaped and escaped the Nazis and came to America, where he became an economics professor at Harvard until he died in 1950. He was enormously influential during the first half of the 20th century, but he's still regarded as controversial. Um, why? Because of the economic long wave theory. Now, happy warriors like you and me, we do not shy away from people or ideas because the cultural propaganda machine dismisses them as controversial. As a matter of fact, 
when I hear the cultural propaganda machine labeling anybody or any idea as controversial, I chase after it to find out more about it because I just know it's going to be interesting. So um, what is the economic long wave theory? Basically, that human affairs, mostly having to do with money, seem to operate on 50-year cycles. Can I give you an example? Um, it, might, it might be helpful if you uh, grab a, a pen and paper and just sort of note this down very briefly. Um, but or otherwise, you know what, you can just listen again. All right, the, uh, let's, let's try. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do this two ways, I think. Here's way one. I will look at the 50 years from 1780 to 1830. And you see that it was a, a period, particularly in the middle there, of uh, great economic prosperity. What was going on between 1780 and 1830? Well, I'll tell you. It was the steam engine. And what happened was that shipping across the Atlantic, and in those days, the major shipping route of the whole world was Europe to America. Right? So there was very little in those days, very little Pacific uh, travel, very little India. There was a little bit of uh, travel up the East Coast, up and down the East Coast of Africa. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of shipping in that 50-year period from 1780 to 1830, uh, that was across the Atlantic. And, of course, uh, it, was sh it was by sail. It was slow. It was unreliable. It was unpredictable. It was dangerous. And all of a sudden, ships across the Atlantic began to be powered by steam engine. And all of a sudden, ships began to operate on a schedule, and they were transport was less expensive and it was safer it was more reliable this launched an unbelievably huge tidal wave of economic prosperity okay let's move to the next 50-year period let's look at 1830 to 1880 and again that also peaked with another economic boom what was going on here? Think to 1830 to 1880. And what we had was the telegraph. 1844 was the developing of the telegraph. It triggered an incredible wave of prosperity. All of a sudden, information traveled faster than a man on a horse. All of a sudden, Commodity brokers in Philadelphia and New York knew what was happening in the Midwest, knew what the farmers were doing uh, quickly. It didn't take three weeks for the information to come. It came instantaneously on the telegraph. And so, uh, not surprisingly, uh, that period just launched a huge uh, wave of economic creativity based on the communication revolution for, this is like this is the telegraph of the 19th excuse me this is like the internet of the 19th century you could think of it it was even more significant because nothing like it had ever seen been seen before whereas you could say that you know the internet sort of combined radio and television and the telephone uh, 
all of things which existed. But in 1844, so in the middle of this period, 1830 to 1880, uh, comes the telegraph and, uh, and, and another thing that happened then as well uh, was uh, the spreading of the railway lines. You know, railway tracks were being laid across everywhere, not just America. Let's now go to the next 50-year period, 1880 to 1930. And again, what's going on here? Uh, well, it's um, the automobile. Oh, I should go, first of all, it is the telephone, the telephone, and then it is wireless and radio and the um, mass production of the automobile. That's what's going on. Again, notice communication things, right? Um, it was, um, it was uh, possible to, um, uh, to, to, get, to get around, to move. And um, electricity, by the way, also. Now, it's not just the telegraph, it's not just telephone, it's not just radio, but electrical street lighting, electrical power in people's homes, factories being driven by electrical, all of this stuff going on, 1880 to 1930. Uh, then came World War II, and let's look at 1930 to 1970, let's say 1980. That 50-year period, what's going on there? Um, well, uh, tremendous growth in the petrochemical industry. Why? Because supplying fuel for the millions of cars that are suddenly showing up on the road. And once they're producing oil for cars, well, then plastic comes about as well. And so um, that period of 1930 to about 1980, including World War II, uh, but there's something else that happens during that period as well, and that's perhaps the most important of all, and that is air transport. Air transport arrives. And um, again, quickly, reliably getting people around faster than was ever possible before. Not surprisingly, a huge boom. Um, let's then, and I'll wrap it up with, uh, with this. Then let's look from uh, 1980. Uh, you know, to to the present time, and what's obviously happening there is uh, information uh, society, uh, the internet, um, data, uh, the the uh, the importance of information and data, and the processing of of it, and the communicating of it, and so there again, information technology and communication technology. That's what uh, began driving economic growth in the 1980s and uh, and by the way you might remember if any of you go back that long you might remember that the very first personal computer you bought would have been during the 1980s now it wasn't a uh, what you know today it might have been what used to be called a cpm machine but that's when we're talking about 1980 all of a sudden people are buying computers it's there's a new level of communication so that's that's one way of looking at this 50-year cycle in human affairs which by the way again i guess i know it's controversial but it also if you just look at it with open fresh eyes it's also pretty obviously true and so the question is not um 
you know, whoa, how can they say this? It's obvious. Just take a look. Uh, the question is, why did Stalin kill Kondratiev? Why was Schumpeter unpopular? And why is anybody today who speaks about the 50-year cycle unpopular? Right? Why? Well, let's look at it another way, by the way. Again, if you just want to jot these dates down, let me just give you six dates. Uh, 1750. That's a fairly good approximation of when shipping began to uh, to be um, powered by steam, the steam engine, right? The beginning of steam power, all of a sudden, people being able to move more quickly than they had before, call it 1750. 1800, a fairly decent approximation for uh, the beginning of railroads. And again, each of these dates corresponds to a peak in economic creativity of that epoch. Um, by 18, we got 1750, 1800 railways, 1850. By then, um, telegraph wires were in widespread use. They'd been laid everywhere. They were beginning to be laid under oceans already. And so by 1850, the very first form of electronic communication, not surprisingly, a tremendous launch pad of economic productivity. 1900, um, the phone, the radio, the automobile. Yeah, not surprisingly, 1900 launches this incredible spurt of economic wealth creation. 1950, and that was sort of the, uh, that was the, uh, if you like, the heyday of America, victorious after World War II, 1950, color television spreading throughout every home in America more quickly than any other invention ever spread before. And uh, all of a sudden, people are connected with one another. People meet around the cooler in the, uh, in the, at work in the morning, and they all talk about which of the three channels they were looking at last night and what they, uh, what they saw. And then comes 2000, and obviously 2000 was the internet, and the incredible boom that that created. So, again, I'm rounding it up here, obviously, but 1750, the steam engine, uh, 1800 railways, 1850, electronic communication in the form of the telegraph, 1900, phone, radio, automobile, uh, 1950, television, 2000, the internet, and so it goes. And uh, it seems to be fairly reliable and something that is is very true. And so the question is, why should it be controversial? What I've just told you, isn't it interesting? Like, if, if you didn't know about this, isn't it interesting that we seem to operate on a 50-year cycle, not a 90-year, not an 18-year, not 12-year, 50-year cycle, like two generations, Right. If you think of a generation, you know, you sometimes think of a picture of grandpa and his uh, and his daughter and his grandchild. You know, you might think of grandpa 75 and you might think of his child as, as 50 and you might think of the uh, the grandchild 
uh, at that point, you know, might be 25 or in the early 20s already, maybe married. And so there's a fourth generation of a little a little child playing around on the floor. Four generations separated by roughly 25 years. So call it a rounding off of a generation. Two of them seem to have significance in the economic affairs of human beings. So why is this controversial, right? What's the big deal? Let me tell you, it's controversial for exactly the same reason that telling you that sex is binary, that there are only two sexes, male and female, well, that's also controversial. It is. And you know why it's controversial? Because it's what the Bible says. Genesis 1 verse 27, male and female, he created them. Got it? So what's wrong with that? Why should that be controversial? Because in a world of rampant and um, intense secularism, anything biblical is controversial. Get it? It's as simple as that. And so just think about how odd this is. If a young girl starts thinking she's fat, nobody gives her an intestinal bypass operation. They don't. We, uh, we send her to a uh, psychiatrist because we recognize that an eating disorder is a mental problem. And we help her to get her to see herself for what she is. She's beautiful. She's proportional. She's not fat at all. That's how we cure it. But when that exact same young girl decides that she thinks she's a boy, we, and this, I know this sounds bizarre, but it's true, we rush to chemically or surgically remove her breasts and her reproductive organs. What, she thinks she's a boy? Well, that's what she's got to be. Why? Because we simply cannot ever agree with the Bible. The most controversial thing in the whole world is the Bible. And so the Bible says male and female, he created them. That's how we are, my friends. That's how we are. That 99.98% of people born are either male or female. And the 0.02%, that's an, a very high overestimation of the people who are born with physical deformities. But other than that, um, virtually every human being is born either with a male organ or with female organs. That's just how it is. Well, because that's what the Bible said explicitly, male and female created them, Genesis 1.27, that becomes controversial. Now, a girl who thinks that she's uh, fat when she isn't, that's not controversial. There's nothing in the Bible about that. So obviously we can treat that sanely without the hysterical reaction of not agreeing, God forbid, with anything that the Bible says. Well, let me tell you the problem with Kondratiev, Nikolai Kondratiev and Joseph Schumpeter, and the problem with long-wave economic theory, the whole problem with the idea that human beings somehow seem to operate on a 50-year economic cycle. The problem, my friends, you can find very quickly if you turn to the book of Leviticus in the Bible, and no, Leviticus is not a man's aftershave lotion. It is the third book of the Bible. Uh, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. 
And uh, the Hebrew is Hikdashtem et shnat hachamishim shana ukratem dror ba'aretz. And you shall sanctify the 50th year and proclaim freedom throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee. The word jubilee, by the way, is an English word derived directly from the Hebrew. It sounds exactly the same. Um, you just have to know that uh, the Hebrew letter Yud transliterates in most places to a J. For instance, Yaakov is actually is called Jacob, even though his name in Hebrew starts with a Y sound. Uh, Jonah is Jonah is the guy with the whales with a, a J, but in Hebrew he's Yonah with a Y sound. So uh, the Yovel, the uh, Jubilee, it's a Hebrew word. And uh, even the Oxford English Dictionary explicitly um, identifies the etymology of jubilee from the Hebrew. And, um, and that's why it is that in about 1750, they commissioned a bell in Philadelphia. And um, the, in 1750, for all of you who believe that the country was founded by people who were secular and atheistic, uh, on this bell, which you can see to this day in Philadelphia, um, it says around the side of the bell, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. That's what it says on the liberty bell. And so the Bible speaks of this 50-year cycle. You shall sanctify the 50th year. So the Bible identifies a 50-year cycle not so much as a decree, but more as a description. Yes, there is a 50-year tide in the affairs of human beings. Well, this is utterly unthinkable. So Stalin killed Kondratiev for daring to suggest that God has anything to say on the subject of economics, particularly since Stalin regularly announced the latest communist five-year plan, none of which ever worked out. So he was infuriated by Kondratiev saying, hey, look, it's very simple. You've got to see that there is a 50-year cycle that God built into humanity. Well, uh, 1938, Stalin kills Kondratiev. And uh, we today, we do all we can to kill and destroy anybody today who holds similarly controversial positions. Now, what is it that causes the correlation between economic peaks of productivity and these technological innovations, all of which revolve around connection and communication? Well, if you've read thou shall prosper and if you've read business secrets from the bible and if you've studied the 10-part video series the financial uh, prosperity collection then you already know a great deal about this but that is that um, perhaps one of the most important i'm not going to say the very most important but certainly one of the most important correlations for your revenue producing capability is the number of people now listen to me carefully the most imp one of the most important correlations for your ability to create revenue is the number of people who know you like you and trust you that's right
So when the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone, as it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, many people mistakenly think that that applied only to Adam. Okay? Vayomer Hashem Elohim lo tov heyot Adam levado. It's not good, said the Lord. It's not good, the Lord God said, for man to be alone. And he's not talking just about Adam. Ancient Jewish wisdom explains how that phrase is used one more time in the five books of Moses. And the principle is God does not want his children to be disconnected from one another. And, um, and you know, I mean, to this day, like our Father in heaven, if you want to make your grandpa happy, just let him see that all the children and grandchildren are unified in the family. Everybody is close to one another. You want to make grandma happy? Just let her know about that. Because that is what our Father in heaven wants to see his children as well. And so um, God is expressing a deep and divine desire for his children to be connected with one another. You got it? And so what is the idea? Well, it shouldn't surprise us that a good and loving God who wants us to connect with one another would reward us with a blessing of financial abundance. In other words, God is saying, I want you all to be connected with one another. And you know what the most logical and inevitable result of being connected? If you know a lot of people and they like you and they trust you, that's called connection. And guess what happens? Financial abundance. So to clarify, I am not saying that God wants us to be rich. But what I am saying is you got it the wrong way around. You are confusing cause and effect. God wants us to be connected to one another. And if we do, don't be surprised if the incredible blessing of financial abundance follows on. Right? God says, I want you to be connected with one another. And so I've arranged things so as that the more connected you are, the more money you're going to make. And that's a blessing. So every advance, technological advance for connection improves our money-making ability, obviously. Steamships, railways, telegraphs, motor cars, wireless, telephone, television, internet, every single one of these corresponds to a peak of economic productivity. In other words, you make it easier for people to fulfill God's wish for his children to be connected with one another. So you build them a telegraph, build them motor cars, build them roads, build them things that enable them to communicate and connect more effectively. Don't be surprised if this incredible blessing of financial abundance follows right on. Now, let's go to the problem. Okay, You didn't think we'd get through a whole show all with nothing but good times. Here's the problem. The post office in the United States was formed in about 1775. I think it was actually during the Continental Congress, and Benjamin Franklin was actually appointed, <laughs> amazingly enough, think about this, 1775, he was appointed the first postmaster general. 
<laughs> I mean, the country didn't even exist yet. And for many years, the post office did incredibly important work stitching together a huge and sparsely populated land. What an incredible thing. What an incredible concept that from day one, all first-class mail costs the same. Uh, you can have a letter delivered to a tiny little rural route in North Dakota, or you can have that same letter de uh, delivered in the city of Chicago. It's still going to cost the same for all of those places. What a fantastic way to unify the country. And so not surprisingly, this was part of the American story of prosperity. That's what happened. Now, without going into the history and the story of unionization of the post office and without the uh, idea that nobody can be fired and without looking at all of the things that are dysfunctional today in what everyone recognizes to be a broken and dysfunctional postal system in the United States of America, and by the way, many, many other countries the same. Unfortunately, there are countries that we at RabbiDanielLappin.com, we don't deliver uh, our books and our resources because the uh, postal services in those countries are too unreliable and never gets there. So, yes, there's many countries that have this problem. In the United States, uh, the post office is removing post boxes. Have you, have you noticed that blue post box that you used to drop mail into? It's gone. And that means there's less work for the guy picking up the mail. He stops at fewer boxes. Uh, they're closing tens of thousands of post offices, not just thousands, tens of thousands. Uh, they are taking, you know what, maybe it's thousands. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withdraw that. I'm, I'm not sure it's tens of thousands, but I do know it's thousands. Um, they're taking longer and longer to deliver a letter. They're charging more and more. Have you any idea how the cost of first-class mail has skyrocketed in America since 1962 when things really started to go bad? And so what we get is worse service for more money. And, uh, and that's, that's what's happening. They are literally taking longer and longer and longer to deliver a letter. More letters get lost or tossed or thrown away. They are charging more and more money. And the service you get in most post offices is slow and surly and sullen. It's a disaster. So we have to recognize that in the United States, as in many other countries, uh, the mail system is on the decline. And that's bad because when we connect with one another, mail is one of the important ways we always connected with one another. Direct mail was an important part of marketing, but you can't count on it anymore. And so little by little, people are realizing that they can't rely on mail. I mean, do you know there used to be multiple deliveries of mail a day, multiple deliveries a day in many cities? And today, there's many days on which mail just doesn't arrive. The postal worker just didn't feel like showing up. Why should they? If they can't get fired, they don't get a, nothing changes. Why should they work if they don't feel like it? There's absolutely nothing that will happen to them. And when you set up that situation, right, anybody knows that if you start a business and you eventually start hiring employees and you set it up, that there's no benefit if they're effective and there's no cost if they're lazy and negligent, um, your business is going to die. 
and the post office doesn't die because it keeps getting money. They, they have a monopoly of first-class mail, so to whatever extent people use it, that's revenue that can never stop, and the price keeps going up, and there's nothing you can do about it. So you've got to recognize that uh, in many countries, including today the United States of America, mail is on its way out. Railways. Now, that's another important part of connection. And in the United States, rail travel is broken and dysfunctional. It's okay for cargo, right? You can, you can ship cargo uh, by rail. But for people, it's worse than a joke. Because jokes at least don't cost mountains of tax money to subsidize them. Jokes pretty much free or should be. Uh, but railways, right, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And when you compare the way railways function in many other countries, you say, okay, in America, it's all over. Now, you can, again, go back to the 1950s and you can read stories of people taking wonderful rail trips around America. And you could travel by rail. It was reliable. It was clean. Uh, the service was excellent. All gone. Finished. That's not an improvement in the state of a country. That's a deterioration. So when you compare to countries in Europe and Asia, uh, the United States basically does not have rail transport. Air travel. How about air travel? I'm looking at the condition of communication today. Air travel. Well, I think here opinions differ. It's not as bad as railways, but uh, neither is as good as it could be, right? And so, uh, yeah, well, you know, we basically do have a functioning air system. Um, not as good as it has been, not as good as it should be, but okay, it's something. How about roads? Now, back in the 1950s, the interstate system was a transportation miracle, and it had a lot to do with America becoming what it was till it all began tumbling down in about 1962 or thereabouts. Uh, the interstate road system was absolutely amazing, very important. How about roads today? Have you ever had, well, I'm sure you've had, I mean, if you drive particularly in a city today, badly maintained, potholes, inadequate roads, um, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, by the way, basically unchanged for 50 years. The Ohio Turnpike, if you drive from Washington, D.C., uh, shall we say, to Pittsburgh or to Cleveland, you are driving roads that have not been changed since about 1950. Right? That's it. It's a mess. The road system today neglected and... Um, not maintained, not expanded, it is a mess. So what is true in many developing countries in Asia and Africa is now true also in America, which is now, sadly, a very rapidly declining world power, which is soon going to concede center stage to China. And that'll be the topic of another podcast soon. But wherever you live, my friends, you happy warriors, it is very likely that the communication and connection facilities provided by your political power structure is inadequate. And so there you are trying to build up your revenue, increase your earnings in all the ways that we have spoken about and taught about, and you are handicapped 
because the communication infrastructure provided in your particular country is inadequate. There's no question that this makes your revenue creation efforts that much more difficult. So uh, how do you compensate for this? What do you do? Well, first of all, obviously go electronic. As much as possible, switch to electronic. And uh, make sure you are adept. Make sure you are up to date on available technology. Uh, don't go overboard on this. I mean, you know, don't just uh, jump into software because it's there. Uh, you've got to see what, what the people you need to communicate with are using. But uh, develop strategies. Uh, you know, don't let your email run your life. Determine what times of the day or when you look at email, how you process email. There are, there are very good lessons available on, on how to do all this. But basically become a very competent electronic or digital communicator. And, uh, and you find, you know, for whatever you're trying to do, is it video, is it message, is it typed, whatever it is. But uh, make sure you are not just using digital, but using it intelligently. That also means not overusing it, right? It means using it intelligently. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, connect through institutions, chiefly church and synagogue. Now, not every single church and every single synagogue is helpful in this regard, but um, it's not going to be that hard. If you do a little bit of a search, not going to be that hard to find a church that recognizes that part of its value that it delivers is communication, connection, collaboration. Those are really, really important things. And um, there are, you know, there are also active trade and business groups. Here you have to be a little bit more careful because uh, you don't want to be involved in a group that is made up of people, every one of whom is looking out for themselves. And so civic organizations are a way to go. Rotary, right, or whatever is the equivalent in your neighborhood, in your country, in your town, uh, there are civic groups where men and women get together in order to improve things, in order to provide services. One of the early rotary goals in the United States of America was to raise money to help eradicate polio. And they played a huge role in this, recognized. So when you're involved in a group like that, you are a giver, not a taker. You're not just looking out for what you can get. And the magical result is that you do benefit from all of those connections. And so uh, when you get involved in a good church, let the pastor structure know that you're available to help, whether it's in a lay leadership role, whether it's in a financial role, whatever it is, but be a giver, which leads us to the uh, third point, which is seek to do people favors. Just try to do people favors. Set yourself a doable metric. I don't know what it is for you, obviously, but uh, say to yourself, for instance, I am going to do one person a favor at least once a week. And then keep a track of that in your journal, right? And you can get your, you can pick up your journal at the store at rabbidaniellappin.com. It's right there. 
get yourself a journal. And one of the things you'd mark in your journal is the date when you last did somebody a favor. And then you watch and you see, hey, I'm coming up in a week. It's time for me to find a way of helping somebody else. At first, you're going to find it incredibly difficult. You really will. It's like, you know, starting an exercise regimen or going on a diet. These are very hard things to do. But uh, go ahead and uh, just break through. Do somebody a favor. And then you'll find a way to do somebody else a favor the next week. And then you'll find, hey, this isn't so hard. I'm figuring out how to help people, how to do. Just keep doing that. Uh, My friends, you've got to overcome the natural decline in civic services, uh, the natural decline in political and social structure. And you do it by strengthening your own connections. Go electronic. Connect through institutions like churches and synagogues and civic groups like Rotary. And, uh, and number three, seek to do people favors. Make it a doable metric, something you can actually measure and you know when you're doing it and you do it. You are going to be astounded at the results. So, you know, let's not whine and weep about the, uh, the decline of the post office and the decline of the railways and the growing unreliability of so many people in these services. Let's not worry about that. Let us laugh jeeringly at all that is controversial, clutching your pearls and gasping for breath. Oh, no, controversial. No, embrace the controversial. There's bound to be something of real value there. And uh, overcome it by developing your strategies for connection, electronic, institutional, and personal by seeking to do people favors. And through all of these things, you're stressing yourself as a giver, not a taker, because that is the kind of population that the good Lord had in mind when he created us and put us here on this planet. That is the whole concept. My friends, All of this helps you focus on your five F's, the essential five elements that make up the unified totality of your life, your family, your faith, your finances, your friendships, and your fitness, your physical condition. Those five principles that all together make up the unified totality of your life and its success are things that I teach very strongly on wehappywarriors.com. All you need to do, though, is is go to the regular website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and um, make sure you've got yourself your free uh, e-book, The Holistic You, all right? The way in which all of these separate parts of you work together with one another to strengthen each other to make your life the success it ought to be. So you're looking for a free uh, ebook. You can get a free download. It's called The Holistic You, and you want to look for that on the website rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, those of you who uh, share my recognition of the Bible as the most controversial document in history, 
and therefore possibly the most valuable document in history, uh, you might want to take a look at a wonderful thing I'm doing at the moment, wonderful for me, and uh, I hope for you too, certainly based on, on the many people who are enjoying it with me, uh, we have a communication that suggests that we're all benefiting from it. It's called Scrolling Through Scripture, and uh, you will see that also on the website, uh, rabbidaniellappin.com, Scrolling Through Scripture, where I literally take you verse by verse, enabling you to uncover all that ancient Jewish wisdom has available on those particular verses we're studying. So, my friends, that is as far as we can go today. Yes, I am thrilled to be back with you live, the real thing, current and up-to-date, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, wish you a week of really good times with your physical fitness and your health, your finances, your friendships, your family, and your faith. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.